Rain and thunder and lightning crumbling Buildings falling, hurricanes earth shattering Membranes scattering, insane happening Souls keep burning and the sky keeps plummeting The sky's falling, life is appalling And death is lurking, niggas killing each other Leaving bodies, nobody's searching for And juveniles are losing trials Catching a bit of murder, one and mothers is drinking And drugging hoes, searching for their son And liquor stores up on every corner And younger people done accepted defeat And a melting pot of lava seeping And the hood is all the mark and conceive When your foes lead until they death And you pick in a pocket or just Get even niggas is banging, they bottles was banging, they hunks thugging. Highly intelligent Africans lower to punch thugging, and the coppers is declaring the planets run by your government. And genocidal things over while the devil is loving it. And children in high school rolling through smoking their classes up, and people that's rich don't be checking for what is happening. Degrading our women, knocking them up, leave them or smack them up, and ain't no way to reach us. We sleeping like hell's passing. Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Poor. And Bill, we're back again, and we still have love on our minds. Yes, we have. <laughs> I've got love on my mind. That's a great song. Who sings that? Natalie Cole, I think. Natalie Cole. Like, yeah, the late. Like, yeah, the late. Oh, yeah, she passed away. Yeah, she passed away last year, I think. Yeah, yeah, year, last year, year before. I think that's who sang that. It's a nice song. Well, we more on love, uh, specifically. And I just wrote something that yeah. should be published probably maybe today on Mockingbird's website. Yeah, it's good. I liked it. Inspired by our reading of Halleck. Yeah, that was from his first work, right? Yeah, and I quoted it from this one, too, at the end. Stuff about yeah. Abraham and, and, the, and the life of faith. Well, why don't you put it in context? Because you're hearing it first, folks. Scott Jones is offering... The Nicodemus. Or the bit of the, um, the, oh, Zach, Zach. the Zacchaeus option. Yeah, yeah, the Nicodemus actually. The Nicodemus option <laughs> the Nicodemus. was a, that's what you got called if you were or if you were a secret Christian in right. the early church. Right? I might not be against that either. Yeah, but. well, that's, that's uh, yeah. But uh, no, I'm sorry, the Zacchaeus option. Yeah, I, well, you know, right now this book that I think is still forthcoming, The Benedict Option by Rod Dreher, who is a guy that I don't think is theologically trained. I mean, I don't. I'm not saying that. I don't mean that in a disparaging way. I mean, I'm just. He's not a, a point of fact. Yeah, he, he's he wrote that book about the crunchy cons. Like, um, so he's he's kind of movement conservative guy, creative thinker. You know, again, like one of these guys. The whole crunchy con movement. You had these conservatives who were kind of in the environment mm-hmm. and just sort of sustainable living. So he wrote a book about that, and he is a Christian, and he thinks that this that. The Benedict option is what we need now. And so basically, he's thinking that just like the Benedictine monks who, I guess, you know, in the late medieval period, like late antiquity, early onset of the medieval period, the cusp there, began to kind of live in cloistered communities as the Christian civilization was failing, faltering, and could sort of live off of a portion of what they made and kind of were able to create sustainable communities that were communities that you could say were communities of virtue, prayer. Yeah, I mean the economic the, yeah. prosperity. The uh, really the Benedictine um, movement really probably had its first. Well, Gregory the Great was its first champion. Uh, Greg, Pope Gregory uh, Benedict had lived just a little bit prior to him. And uh, he wrote a life on, on Benedict, and 
you know, part of the Benedictine order, it was from, you know, there, you know, there were orders, a lot of orders, rules of orders written in the fourth century. And uh, the Benedictine order was a, an attempt to kind of create, um, uh, I guess, a more friendly, I mean, <laughs> you know, if you read the Benedictine order, and you can look it up, it's, it's uh, on, you know, yeah, it's online. Uh, you're not going to necessarily think it was more lenient, but it, it was a, it was a more sensitive uh you know, not you don't have to be a, a athlete of God to to live in a Benedictine monastery. And you know, there was a sense they gathered around really three vows: the vows of chastity, the vows of obedience, the vows of poverty. But that you know, they lived in community, and and uh, ironically, they you know because of uh, and Charlemagne really where they really started to grow. It, Charlemagne used it as a way of reforming the monastic communities in his uh, Frankish kingdom. And in many ways, most of the reform movements, monastic reform movements that happened after it was just an attempt to get to back to the Benedictine order because part of what happens with them is they, leave, they live efficiently and um, they attract uh, admirers and uh, their attempt to live away from the world often made them successful and, uh, and then the next generation worldly. But it was an attempt to live in community, attempt to – Live a life of prayer and work, and um, you know, really the where you were, you you submitted to you submitted to the abbey abbot or the head of the order as if they were or the head of the house as if they were God, but it was their job to tenderly care for um, for their family or for the for the monks, and it really was an alternative family structure in a lot of ways. Yeah, so this is, I mean, Rod Dreher is looking to this for inspiration in his forthcoming book, which should be out, I think, like any time now. But it's uh, basically he's saying this is what the American church needs to do. It needs to kind of, I mean, he's also a big fan of Alistair McIntyre, who thinks that, you know, for the philosophers, like Marx has turned Thomist Roman Catholic, who thought he wrote a book called After Virtue, basically Mm -hmm. saying that. You know that that we are in a place where we are in a morally and culturally bankrupt late modernity that really doesn't have much to offer in the formation of human beings seeking to live the good life, and so you know, influenced by McIntyre and others, and making allusion to the Benedictine movement and order and its sort of attempt to live in the chaos of. The yeah. transitioning in antiquity, I guess, the Middle Ages. Right to live. That this is yeah. this is what the model for living in the the North American culture does, today. Does he mean it as a way of kind of withdrawing? And it's not only a sense of creating order, but is it partially that part of how you the Benedictine notion for him is you got to remove yourself from society? Is that part of well, you know, because it's interesting because I I don't think the book's free, so he's not taking the vow pop. <laughs> it's on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, you know, he he thinks. Uh, I mean, I'm on his. I'm on his uh, frequently asked questions. This is a little old. This is like two years ago. So I guess this is expanded in the forthcoming book. But um, he's uh, basically he says, oh, where is it? The Benedict option refers to Christians in the contemporary West who cease to identify the con, con- the continuation of civility and moral community with the maintenance of American empire and who therefore are keen to construct local forms of community as loci 
of Christian resistance against what the empire represents. Put less grandly, (laughs) (laughs) the Benedict Option or Benop is an umbrella term for Christians who accept McIntyre's critique of modernity. And who also recognize that forming Christians who live out Christianity according to great tradition requires embedding within communities and institutions dedicated to that formation. Yeah, see, that sounds more like one of the crusading orders as opposed to the Benedictine. <laughs> because, uh, you know, it was, I, I guess Henry Now one time said, yeah, this was a beautiful description of what they they left. You know, he, he says this in his book about the Desert Fathers. They they left and, and they fled from society in order that they might save the world. <laughs> yeah. this, this doesn't feel like they're trying to save the world in this Benedictine option. No, this is does not. Well, and yeah, he's just, you know, they also, he has this, in his FAQs, what is McIntyre's critique? Be, succ- be succinct. McIntyre says the Enlightenment Project cut Western man off from his roots and tradition, but failed to produce a binding morality based on reason alone. Plus, the Enlightenment extolled the autonomous individual. Consequently, we live in a culture of moral chaos and fragmentation in which many questions are simply impossible to settle. McIntyre says that our contemporary world is a dark wood and that finding our way back to the straight path requires establishing new forms of community that have as their ends lives of virtue. You know, it's really interesting to me about people, not only do people not know uh, ancient history, not only do people not know American history, they don't even know the history of Christianity over the last 30 years. <laughs> because there was very similar attempts. Um, matter of fact, when I, you know, living in intentional community, you know, part of what happened out of the, you know, the influence of the 60s and 70s, there were Christians who... A lot of intentional Christian communities that actually practiced kind of monastic vows, um, submission to one another, common purse, um, to li- you know, living in community, living in mutual submission. And uh, they were beautiful experiments that all failed. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think, I, I, I mean, I don't find the Benedict Option compelling. Also, I think... There was a piece I read in Commonweal this, uh, that recently – it was called Jesus Freaks. It was talking about the DC Talk song and oh, right. Christian's relationship to the political right now. And, and the author, was, she was making the point that Christians often conflate in America, and especially um, conservative Christians, often conflate criticism of Christianity with persecution of it. Right. Yeah, that's right. Because what even juggles like they're more persecuted than Muslims. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, so that's. I mean, that that to me, yeah. you know, it, when these are your concerns, I mean, I think that. Um, yeah. I mean, these are these are all reasons that I think we've even talked about this before. But um, so I read my my proposal is based on Halleck, who I, I am again. Both of us are finding extremely profitable. It's called uh, the Zacchaeus option, and tell them what book this is from. This is from uh, I quote in the piece a little bit from the one we're going through right now. Um, I want you to be, but his previous book was Patience with God. One of them, Patience with God, the story of Zacchaeus continuing in us, uh, and he opens it with these words: "I agree with atheists on many things, often on almost everything, except <laughs> their belief that God doesn't exist." <laughs> In today's bustling marketplace of of religious wares of every kind, I sometimes feel closer with my Christian faith to the skeptics or to the atheist or agnostic critics of religion. With certain kind of atheists, I share a sense of God's absence from the world. However, I regard their interpretation of this feeling as too hasty, as an expression of impatience. I am also often oppressed 
by God's silence and the sense of God's remoteness. I realize that the ambivalent nature of the world and life's many paradoxes can give rise to phrases such as God is dead to explain God's hiddenness, but I can also find other possible interpretations of the same experience and another possible attitude to the absent God. I know of three mutually, I, I know of three mutually and profoundly interconnected forms of patience for confronting the absence of God. They're called faith, hope, and love. And then he just talks about what he thinks is the difference between um, atheism. You know, that basically atheism and fundamentalism are alike in that they're both forms of impatient postures towards God. And I, you know, and then later he just says like that he felt like his chief calling in ministry is to be an understanding neighbor for those who find it impossible to join the exultant crowds beneath the unfurled flags of whatever color for those who keep their distance. I like Zacchaeus's. I think I have been given the gift of understanding them. People often construe the distance that Zacchaeus's maintain as an expression of their superiority, but I don't think they are right. Things aren't that simple. In my experience, it is more the result of shyness. In some cases, the reason for their aversion to crowds, particularly ones with slogans and banners, is that they suspect the truth is too fragile, fragile to be chanted on the street. Most of these people did not choose their place on the margins voluntarily. It could well be that some of them are are also reticent because, like Zacchaeus, they're all too aware that their house is not in order, and they realize, or at least suspect, that changes need to be made in their own lives. Maybe, unlike the unfortunate person in one of Jesus' parables, they realize they are not properly attired for the wedding feast and cannot take a seat among the guests of honor at the wedding feast. They're still on the journey, dusty and far from the goal. I just I find uh, I, I just I find that very compelling. I think like uh, the picture of Zacchaeus is one who's drawn and yet remains far off. Yeah, no, I think it is. You know, because, uh, see, the the trouble with the Benedictine option, and by the way, if they actually want to become Benedictines, I'm for that. No, no, I mean, I really <laughs> they're, they're mean They're local that. chapters all over. Well, I mean, because there's a sense where the, the trouble is we, we get an idea from church history, you know, or an idea, if we, you know, Protestants take an idea from Catholicism, but they they don't go the whole way with it. You know, for instance, I, you know, when when some mainline churches started wanting to have bishops, and matter of fact, even some of the you know denominational executives started wearing mitres almost. <laughs> they looked, you know, they wore these ecclesial gowns that looked like they had just uh, left uh, left the Vatican. <laughs> uh, 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 you know, I one time said that I was in this ecumenical discussion, saying you know, they were arguing why there should be bishops. I go, I'm all, I'll vote for bishops if they take the vow of, of poverty and chastity. <laughs> I mean, because uh, even when they take, even when they give up worldly stuff, they, you know, the, the temptation to power. Well, we know the history what that's done to to bishops. My whole thing is the Benedictine uh, order preserved um, civilization. It was a place where piety flourished. It transformed communities. I mean, again, you can talk about all the things that went wrong with it, but the the basic reason it worked was. Three things that are antithetical to almost everything we we think, and just alone the, the the vow of obedience apart from a sacramental piety. That's why you get all these weird Christian groups, and we can name them, where they're all they have all this hierarchical uh, stuff because they don't they don't they try to have order uh, apart from grace and sacramental things. So when I hear f- conservative Christians talking about wanting to impose the Benedictine order. Uh, without having the sacramental theology or 
the humility or the willingness to go 100% with it. Even when you went 100% with it, you know, real Christian community is very, very difficult to sustain. There aren't any shortcuts to that. And and for me, one of the most fundamental things is Christianity is a missionary – it's a missionary religion. It's to be in the world. I mean, that's part of what the Zacchaeus or the Zacchaeus option is about. It's not removable from the world at all. Yeah, and I actually think too that that where I like Halleck's tone is that uh, I think that so. For instance, you look at somebody like Dreyer, who's a big fan of McIntyre, who makes sort of the Thomas's rebooting of Aristotle a high point in the church. Well, there were people that the, Thomas was originally declared a heretic for doing that. And then right. So, well, I mean, so that, so that I, say, I do think Thomas is a high point of Western thinking, but that doesn't mean it's a, it's a term. Right. It's right. Exactly. I, I, right. And I think that absolutely. I think modernity is not something to be wholesale. Like I, I don't yeah. look at it as in, as inferior. I think it's got um, unique challenges. I think it's got uh unique promise you know just like any culture like any 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 place where the gospel takes root there's always signs that god's already at work there proveniently redemptively and always signs of where of the old adam and life east of eden and there's never you know no 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 context is is bereft of either of those you know it's funny i was one of the early jewish christian dialogues i was part one jewish scholar or jewish rabbi said you know you Christians are always worried about modernity. We're very thankful for yeah, modernity. Yeah. I like <laughs> Tolerance is a, not a bad thing for us. Yeah, penicillin, women's rights, Seinfeld. I like all these things. Yeah, right. You know, um, yeah, so I think that that, like, and, and also, you know, Alistair McIntyre points out, too, that traditions, great traditions that grow and expand, they do it through encounter with things outside of them, right. questions, other traditions, interlocutors. And so I think that more of that, is the traditions that can't do that die. There's a reason why people still find consolation in Buddhism or Christi- and Christianity, or something. and they don't. We don't find many people worshiping Odin. You know, I mean, certain like when when traditions lose their explanatory power to give meaning, like it, it, you know, they become insular. And I think that you know that 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 to me that the the like we actually have something not to offer but to receive from the Zacchaeuses of the world. 100%. You know, I, I think, for instance, part of the other problem with when Protestants try to do this, because the Catholic Church is a big tent. We should, you see, like a, like a PowerPoint presentation where the, the recurring slides, part of the problem when Protestants try to do this, dot, 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 for uh, lots of issues. It could, be yeah. a, it could be on a host of issues. Well, because there's a tendency within each Christian congregation, each Christian movement, to see itself as an entity unto itself. Yeah. And, you know, the fact is you had contemplatives in the Catholic Church alongside of activists. And so there's a reason the Shakers don't exist anymore, and there's still Benedictine monasteries. And so I, I do think, for instance, I, we need contemplative people. I think we need people being models of, um, you know, um, more simple life. That's part of the power of Shane Claiborne, for instance. Yeah, yeah. We need those models and we need people. And I have, you know, I've had over the years, you know, I, I know a lot of Christians who have purposely lived more simply, who live in neighborhoods and, and who live in, in a communal kind of way in order to transform their neighborhoods. And I think there's some – I mean, there are people – I have some former students who, who share a house together and kind of a common life together. So this is – there are expressions of this. And to me, I think it's an amazingly healthy thing in kind of this postmodern discon- you know, disconnection of communities and such. But 
you know, any, you know, when, when any reform movement has built within it the very things that are going to need to be reformed. And I think uh, particularly when you try to do these things in isolation from a larger sense of Christendom, I think that's, that's, those are problematic for me. And I think historically, you know, the history backs me up on that one. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's interesting. This is from the Hale. The I think we might have mentioned this quote last podcast, but or two podcasts ago, but I want to go back to it. You know, he's talking about this passage in Nietzsche's Gay Science, um, God is Dead. And Hale says, at the same time, I felt that the message God is dead is only the first sentence, which must be followed by another, a second sentence, in the same way that Good Friday was an important message to us from God, but it was not the final one. God is dead. That sentence uttered at the end of the 19th century continued to fascinate for the next hundred years. Maybe it was not only a sentence about God and against God, but also one containing something of God's message to us. A God who has not endured death is not truly living. Hmm. A faith that does not undergo Good Friday cannot attain the fullness of Easter. Crises of faith, both personal and in the histories of culture, are an important part of the history of faith, of our communication with God who is concealed and returns again to those who do not stop waiting for the unique and eternal word to speak to them once more. Yeah. I think, you know, it's interesting. What's behind some of this? And you've alluded to it already. And, and again, I encourage you all to read this article. But um, it's fear. I think it's fear of not being able to have um, the right answers to give to society. It's the fear that um, – I think it's an insecurity. It's an inherent insecurity that my way of life, my faith, might not stand up against what's going on. And the thing I like about uh, the you know Alex is that rather than you know running away from the current reality, rather than being angry, rather than trying to make Christianity great again, uh, he diagnoses the time that we live in. He recognizes that. You know, he's part of the time that he lives in, and he's trying to be faithful in the time that he lives in, which is the call that every Christian's had in every time. Yeah, and I think that, you know, what must – yeah, I think of that encounter of Jesus with Zacchaeus. You know, here's this tax collector who's exploiting his people. You know, I'm sure the Romans didn't look favorable on people like that. <laughs> his own people didn't look fa- – you know. No, he was – yeah, I mean he was – He's a uh, racketeer, you know. Right, yeah, he's, he's the middleman that everyone hates. You know, that Halleck says that the key to the Zacchaeus, and it's the key to any Zacchaeus, is uh, I know your name and I know your secret. Mm. I know why you why you remain at a distance. And I think that what I appreciate about Halleck is, is if we understand ourselves in the love of God, addressed by God, the God revealed in Christ, the God who encountered Zacchaeus, I think we realize that our needs are a lot more like anyone outside the church right. you know, than, than, than our distinctions are. I mean, that's I mean, what we what we gather to hear again and again from the risen Lord is that I, I, I know your name and I know your secret. You know, come, you are heavy laden, yeah. and I'll give you rest. And that's what people that are remaining far out and people that don't have their act together that are gathered within the church, I, I think that's our common need. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's our... If it's our common need, then it is our it is our common mission. Amen. The more you ignore me, 